0: Oh good morning church Good morning uh you know our uh, our church has a lot of uh people that go to the Ecclesia conference as well, and so we always joke around that uh, the, a church about uh, a conference about the church ends up wiping out all these different churches uh <laughs> for because people people all at the conference not at the church but that's okay. I'll get off that soapbox quickly here uh anyway uh as Phil mentioned uh this morning. I'm grateful also that there's a lunch after this because that gets me. That means I get to preach as long as I want to, right? You guys just bring the food in and we'll eat as we open up God's Word together. I'm kidding. Um, Anyway, let's uh, go and open up your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. (coughs) As I've studied through the book of Hebrews, uh, even in the recent weeks, uh, it has grown more and more precious to me uh, as it just. uh, unpacks and unfolds the glories of Christ our Savior and and uh, has such rich theology about who he is and doesn't just stop at theology but dives into uh, the practical as well as uh, it tells us much about not only who Christ is uh, but how we are to live in response to who he is and we're going to spend some time this morning uh, talking about that very thing so look with me at Hebrews chapter 10 starting at verse 19 Hebrews chapter 10, starting at verse 19. And we'll read through verse 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, As we know that the Christian life is one of worship. It's one of resting in the grace and work of Christ while at the same time striving to live a life of holiness before God. Striving to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord. Striving to live a life that's in line with His statutes and commands and charges and exhortations that we find throughout the pages of Scripture. It's Striving to live a life of worship, and the work of Christ and our life of worship in response, as we read through our Bibles, as we read through even the New Testament, we know those two things are inseparable. It's the work of Christ that actually gives us the desire to obey in the first place. Right? It's who Christ is that draws us and drives us to worship in the first place. And it's because of the work of Christ that we even have the desire or the ability or access to God. So this morning we're going to spend some time looking at these verses here in chapter 10 of Hebrews, and this passage is going to give us both a glimpse into the work of Christ, into the work of Christ that has given us access to a holy God, as well as the implications of that access to our lives. So, Hebrews ten nineteen to twenty five, in this text, the author of Hebrews gives us a condensed summary of the work of Christ in his high priestly ministry that has graciously given us access to God, and because of that access, because of our now relationship to Christ, the great high priest, who's granted us access to God, the author of Hebrews reiterates three charges that should describe the way every single Christian lives. Uh, the short version of that is Hebrews 10, 19-25 shows us that Christ's work should lead to a life of worship. That Christ's work should lead to a life of worship. You write down the word should. You hear the word should. and In fact, you could say Christ's work will lead to a life of worship for those who believe in Him. You could say that Christ's work Uh, will, in fact, should, must lead to a life of worship. So first, we're going to look at the work of Christ, and then once we've allowed that to sink in and really take root into our hearts and our minds, uh, we're going to look to see how this should lead to a life of worship. So first, the work of Christ. First, the work of Christ. There are certain words in your Bibles that as you're reading, whether devotionally or you're studying or even teaching, that you can kind of glimpse past. You can fly by them and not think twice about what those words mean. And I wonder if the first two words of our passage this morning actually fall into that category. You have the words, therefore and brothers. Therefore and brothers. The word, therefore, as you know, should not be a word that when you're reading through your Bible, it shouldn't be a word that you just fly past. Because there's a very intentional reason why that word is found repeatedly throughout the New Testament. When when you come across that word, therefore, in your Bible, it should cause you to take a slight pause and, and think about what main point did the author of the letter that I'm reading, what main point did they just talk about? What is he about to give us implications on what was his previous point in other words in order to know the importance of where he's going you have to know the importance of where he's been of what it was that he's just talked about and and if you're anything like me at times you come across that word and you're like okay what is this referring back to what on earth is in view here that this author is writing about Well, sometimes in a passage like ours this morning the author actually will reiterate those points give us a quick summary of what it is that he just finished talking about, what it is that he's pointing back to that he wants us to have fresh in our minds. The other word that could be easily looked past is the word brothers. The word brothers. Simply put, this is a reminder to the original recipients of the epistles that the one that was, that is writing the letter, the, the men that God chose to write the truths that we find, even especially in the New Testament, had an intimate relationship with those that he was writing with. He 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 wrote these letters. He wrote this letter even specifically as one of as one who is also uh, ascribing to and living under the truth that he is writing. Just to put this into perspective a little bit, I want you to think of a number in your head of how many times you think the word brother is used in the New Testament epistles as an address to those that he's writing to. Just don't say it out loud. Think of a number in your head. You can tell me after if you were even close here. All right, 150 times, over 150 times the word brothers is used in the New New Testament epistles written to churches. First Corinthians actually takes the cake by far of how many times that word is used you can think about that a little bit with the content of 1 Corinthians. So the writer of Hebrews, in the same way, wants to remind his readers, wants to remind us that he is a fellow brother in Christ. He is a fellow believer. And we'll see it later on that not only does he use this word brothers, but there's other intentional language that he uses to remind us that he is a needed recipient of the coming charges. In the later verses, look back with me at verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, we'll read through verse 21, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, as are mentioned already, our author hopes to reiterate the main points that he wants to point back to, and he does so in uh, before exhorting us uh, later on in verses 22 through, through 25. Uh, so what does he want to draw our attention back to? It's very simple. He wants to remind us of the work of Christ. More specifically, you'll see, and you might, I believe you have this outlined in your bulletins, but more specifically in verses 19 and 20, going to remind us of Christ's final sacrifice. And in verse 21, it's his faithful service. As we're going to see as we go through this text this morning, these two things truly go hand in hand. And yet the author of Hebrews uh, very intentionally wants to draw separate attention to them. Another important note, uh, if you're familiar at all with the book of Hebrews, you know that what is in view in the author's mind is strictly Christological, right? He wants to have us immersed in, focused on, dialed into the glories of Christ and who he is, that he is supreme over, uh, over all that came before him and all that will come after him, that he's better than Moses, better than the angels. Uh, he's the greatest priest that has ever walked the earth. Christ is supreme, and there's a danger in a passage like this to lose sight of that, to lose sight of that flow and thrust of the supremacy of Christ and the the Christological focus that the author of this letter has. And so I want to make sure as we're working through this that we don't lose sight of that. And even in your own mind, and your heart, everything that you hear, allow it to be in the, uh, uh, just a, a mere, um, uh, 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 an aspect of that glory of Christ and to have the backdrop of the glory of Christ behind all of this. So let's first look at Christ's sacrifice. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is his flesh. You've got to put yourself into the mindset of a believing Jew at this time someone who would have been maybe reading this for the first time, Uh, to read that anyone other than the high priest could enter into the holy places would have been an unbelievable thought. Uh, This would have been shocking to them. And not only do we read that the people of God can now enter into the holy places, but the author says that we're to do so confidently. We're to do so with confidence, boldly. We're not to enter in with fear and trembling, with our heads laid low, but instead with with boldness. Imagine what it would have been like to be an Israelite centuries before this was even ever written. Those that would have lived uh, among the people of God, as the people of God, with this tabernacle in the background, in the backdrop of everything that they would have done behind every normal, just everyday aspect of life to be reminded of God's holiness day after day, hour after hour, to have this tense structure behind them and to know that only the priests would go into this holy place. And not only was it only the priests that would go into the holy place, but there was even further in a most holy place that the great high priest was the only one allowed to go into, and even he could only go in once a year. It's part of his service to the people of God. Just for a very quick reminder of what this would have even looked like, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 1. Hebrews 9, 1. It's good to keep uh, this reality in our minds as we go through this text. holding the manna, an Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in full detail. These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, but into the second deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. That's the place that when we come to our section in chapter 10, they would have had in mind. Reading about the access, and when we read about access and confidence, that is the place that would be in mind. I don't know how many of you have ever been to Washington, D.C., and you kind of walk through and you see the different landmarks and buildings and maybe you walk past the White House and you just think, man, if I could just walk around in there, that would be kind of cool, right? And not just walk around the hallways with a tour, but to really get to see all the intricate places that no one else gets to see that maybe we don't even know exist. Imagine that feeling times like a million. That's what it would feel like to walk past the tabernacle and to think, What goes on in there? To know what's in there, but to think what goes on in there. And yet, for the Israelite, for the Jew, they wouldn't have thought if I could just sneak in there to go. No, they would have known that would mean I would drop dead because the glory of God is in there. And yet, in Hebrews 10, it says that we can enter into that place with confidence. So the question is, what changed? If all of a sudden someone walked out to the street while you're walking through washington dc and said hey you come here i want to take you inside i would be a little suspect i wouldn't go but uh, (laughs) i'm just kidding but you'd have to think what changed why can i all of a sudden go into this white house how much more so when you think about the tabernacle that now something has changed that we can enter in with confidence with boldness what has changed why this confidence how do we now have access We'll look at what he writes. Since we have confidence to enter by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, we can enter with confidence because Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, the perfect and righteous one, the great high priest, the great and final high priest entered into the most holy place as the final atoning sacrifice for his people. Hebrews seventeen says this, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every aspect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people says by the blood of Jesus his blood was shed his body was broken this wasn't the blood of bulls and goats that uh, were an integral part of the sacrificial system but instead this was the blood that was shed of the eternal son of god hebrews 9:12 he entered once for all into the holy places not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if, the, for if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of sins, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? to serve the living God. And this wasn't because of His own sin. Jesus didn't shed His blood because of His own sin. In fact, Jesus had none. He had no sin. Hebrews 4, 15, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Paul reminds us of this in 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin. And the amazing reality is so that we, in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. His sacrifice, greater than any other sacrifice, accomplished what no other sacrifice could. Eternal forgiveness and peace with a holy God. A guarantee uh, of a new covenant that brings with it eternal promises and a close and intimate relationship with God, our Creator. Hebrews 9.15 Therefore He is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. First Peter 3.18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that He might bring us to God. There's a new and better covenant whose law would be written on the hearts of God's people. One whose benefits would be eternal and one whose dwelling place for God is no longer a tabernacle. The fact and reality that this is talking about A new covenant uh, is brought to light here in what he writes, continues to write now in verse 20, by the new and living way that he opened for us. This is a new way that God's people find themselves dwelling with God, a way that they would never have been able to dwell with God before, that would have never been possible before. And this is a living way because of the reality of Christ being alive today, the reality that the one who created this way to the Father is eternal and will never cease to be. We talk about the death of Christ. We talk about the sacrifice of Christ. We can't think about that without remembering the reality that Christ is alive today, right now. As you sit in those chairs, as we sang those songs about him and about his work, he is alive interceding for us, mediating for us. This is a new and living way. The veil itself that separated God and man was now set aside because of the breaking of the body of Christ. Look at what he writes in verse 20. By the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain. Again, an amazing statement to think that now we can enter in through the curtain And this new and living way is provided for us through His flesh, through His death. I want you to think about this. Uh, It's only when dealing with an eternal and supernatural God can we say something like this. It is because of the death of our Savior that we have eternal access to God held open by our living Savior. Because of the death of our Savior that we have eternal access to God held open by our living Savior. That doesn't make sense to the world. That doesn't make sense to someone who hears of a man dying on a cross whose story ends there. But his story didn't end there because he is alive today. He is actively holding open that way that we would have to God. We now have access to God because of the atoning work of Christ on the cross. Jesus taking our place for our sin. So first, His final sacrifice highlighted in verses 19 and 20. That brings us to His faithful service. Verse 21. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, I already mentioned this to you, but we can't talk about the sacrifice of Christ without talking about His great priestly ministry, right? The realities that Jesus Christ was a- able to enter in to the most holy place because He is the great high priest. That is That goes hand in hand with His sacrifice, especially when we think about the context of what it is that the author of Hebrew is writing. But with that being said, I, I want to just uh, draw attention to a, co- a couple of quick Reminders and and give us a couple quick reminders of Christ's ministry as a great high priest. And I believe that thinking about these two reminders actually will uh, give some encouragement to you this morning. All right. First reminder here when Jesus went through the curtain into the most holy place where only the great high priest was allowed to go, He did so with us in mind. He did so with you and I in mind. Hebrews 6.19 says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner On our behalf, having become a high priest forever. Thanks, man. After the order of Melchizedek. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Having become a great high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus Christ went into, in the same way the high priests would have gone into the most holy place, On the people's behalf, Jesus went in to the most holy place to give up his own life, to shed his own blood on our behalf, on those who would place their faith in him and his work. Second, second reminder here, Looking back at Hebrews 10 21, the ministry of Christ is current and engaged in our lives. Look at what he writes there. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, have current, ongoing, active right now as we spree- speak, we have a great pre- priest over the house of God. Why do I say that Christ is actively engaged in our lives, though? It says, we have a great priest over the house of God. Friends, uh, you you may know this already, but but if you don't, I want to tell you and remind you this morning, we are, in fact, the house of God. We are the house of God. So Joey, how do you know that? Well, again, Hebrews chapter three, now verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is a faithful, is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are His house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. 1 Corinthians 3.16 says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? He goes on to talk about that in 1 in, uh, Corinthians chapter 6. We are as the people, we as God's people are the house, the dwelling place of God and Jesus Christ is, is right now the active, ongoing Son in charge of His Father's house. That should encourage us this morning to know that Jesus Christ is an active, great High Priest who is actively over us, actively engaged in our lives. The work of Christ and His sacrifice and His service has given us access to God, but the author of Hebrews doesn't leave it there. As I mentioned earlier, the access that we have gained through and in and because of Jesus Christ to, to a close and intimate relationship of forgiveness and peace with our holy God should drive us to a life that responds in a way that reflects this new reality. should drive us to a life of worship. That's what the following... Verses in our passage this morning are going to focus our attention on from the work of Christ now to a life of worship. A life of worship. Jesus Christ died to save a people, and as a part of that, we should be living in a way that reflects our new identity. We should be living in a way that shows the world around us who it is that we worship. Right? We're either going to live a life that's going to show those around us that we worship ourselves, or we're going to live a life and show those around us that we worship God, that we worship the One who has created us, and that this God has given us access to Him to be able to even worship Him. We Live a life to show who it is that we're living for. We should be living lives of constant worship to God. And don't miss this. This is not merely in the form of what it is that we do. This isn't merely in the form of actions that we would do. But even more importantly, this is with the mindset that we have. No matter what it is that we're doing. So again, we looked at the work of Christ, 19 through 21, and now we'll look at a life of worship, and you might see in your outlines there, this is broken down into three clear charges. Three clear charges. And and just a heads up to you, I actually changed uh, those three charges a little bit since I sent it out, I believe, yesterday to the guys, so my bad, but... um, Yeah, since there was already an audible with the scripture reading, I figured we'll just go in line with that and uh, mix things up a little bit. But you could say that these uh, three charges uh, in these following verses are spiritual realities that have outward manifestations. They are spiritual realities that have outward manifestations. Before we dive into these charges specifically, I, I want you to notice something, and I alluded to this a little bit earlier. Each of these charges, verses 22, 23, and 24, they, they, these charges begin with the same two words in our English translations. Let us. Let us. Now, I, I mentioned this similar to the way that the author of Hebrews uses the word brothers to remind them that he is one of them. The author here makes a very intentional choice on how he goes about charging us his readers this actually isn't a a normal imperative Uh, normally an imperative would sound more like you must do this right you should do that second person pointed at the reader solely but instead he makes some very very intentional choices in his grammar to repeatedly pull himself into the line of fire of what it is that he is charging uh, us his readers He's not looking down on those who are reading this letter, but he's looking around him as a fellow believer, as a fellow worshiper of Christ, a fellow member of the house of God, one who is also impacted by the truths and realities of the work of Christ. So let's look at what he goes on to write. Verse 22. Actually, you know what? Let's rewind the tape a little bit. Let's go back to verse 19 and let's feel the the full weight and thrust of this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is now, that is through His flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. The first charge that we are to approach boldly. Approach boldly. Because of the access that we have been given through the work of Christ, we can now approach God think about that. We can now approach God. And we need to correct that a little bit, actually, because it's not just that we can now approach God. We're actually urged to approach God. We are charged to approach God. This is no longer just a truth that we're to know, just some knowledge that should be in our heads, but is a charge for us to follow, to draw near to God, in fact, this should be a desire of every Christian to get to know God more, to have a greater understanding of who He is, a greater understanding of how uh, we are to live in light of the realities of who He is. <coughs> wouldn't be an exaggeration for us to say that drawing near to God, approaching God, is what we have been saved for. And in fact, drawing near to God is what we have been saved to. An intimate relationship with God. Unless we forget the only way that we can draw near to God is actually through Christ. Hebrews 7.25 says this, Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. He always lives to make intercession for them. And how are we to draw near to God? Well, look at what he writes in verse back in verse 20, uh, 20, uh, 22 here. We're to draw near with a true heart, a genuine heart, a sincere heart, one that's not attempting to uh, approach God while at the same time holding on to to worldly desires or worldly passions that we should be putting off. A heart that isn't trying to deceive those around us with mere outward religion and put on a show. But a heart whose love and desire for Christ is deep-rooted in your life. This true heart, as our author puts it, is to be paired with the full assurance of faith. Full assurance of faith. This is the idea of having a, a mind that has a complete certainty about something, complete, unwavering certainty about something. In this case, it's uh, resting in the work of Christ, without doubting. Not wondering what what was was the work of Christ really enough. Not wondering if Christ was in fact and is in fact a perfect great high priest and redeemer that the Bible claims that he is. If you're anything like me, you might come across something like that in your Bible, something that that one of the writers of, especially the New Testament, wrote and think, how does the author even of Hebrews paint such a, a confident picture of a believer here? Has this man never doubted what he believes? Has he ever wondered, has he ever questioned any aspect of what it is that he's writing, of what he believes? Not to discredit at all the reality that, even though we don't know who wrote Hebrews, it would have been either an apostle or a close associate, right? These were written by by eyewitnesses of the works of Christ. obviously we can't dive into the heart and mind or the sanctification process of the author of Hebrews, but we do know this with confidence. The boldness that he talks about, the assurance of faith that he is writing about, and that he says we're to have is inseparably linked from the work of Christ. It doesn't exist apart from the purifying work of Christ, from the purifying work that Jesus Christ was able to, To accomplish and from the realities of that another way to put it is that we cannot have full assurance of faith without minds that are continually renewed by truth we cannot have full assurance of faith without minds that are continually renewed by truth by the realities of who Christ is and what he's done remember this context is in This uh, uh, passage is in the context of drawing near to God. This full assurance of faith is in the context of drawing near to God. As we draw near to God, it's a helpful reminder, necessary reminder for us that we should be pulling away from the world. Remember, the world wants nothing more than to be feeding lies into our minds. There are desires that each and every one of us Has, as followers of Christ even, that we are constantly having to put to death and lies that we are constantly having to put to death and put away and be reminded of truth to cancel those things out. The world wants nothing more than to push a worldview that wants nothing to do with God. In fact, a worldview that is anti-truth. This can't be separated from having a sincere heart, if we're too put busy putting on a show for those around us and living as if God doesn't exist when, when no one is watch, watching, then why should we ever be surprised if we are doubting our assurance, if we're doubting our faith? Those two things will never be able to occupy our minds at the same time we're either going to be fighting after after the desires of our own hearts and living differently than we do around other believers. We're either going to do that or we're going to rest in the truth of Christ and have an assurance, a full assurance of faith that will grow. Let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. The author of Hebrews starts to pull in more of that ritualistic language, ritualistic cleansing language. He says to be sprinkled clean. That would have been associated even with the establishment of a new covenant. Hebrews nine eighteen. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and listen to this, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people. In a similar way, this idea of being washed with with pure water is associated with being cleansed from uncleanness being purified before coming to the Lord. See, we have to keep in mind, although we are called to draw near to God, although we are called to boldly approach God, this is not because the holiness of God has diminished and has been lessened in any way at all. We don't take this newfound access to God, this this urge to draw near to God lightly. In fact, I want you to listen to the language that's used in uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. And this is in the context of, of the new covenant that, that God has promised to make with his people. Ezekiel 36, 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. When We live a life that is marked by a desire to know God and not just to know Him, but to live according to His law and statutes. That goes hand in hand with a vivid understanding and a reminder that God is holy. That God is holy. And not only that God is holy, but There's another reality that comes with that, right? That we are not. That God is holy and we are not. Apart from the righteousness that gets applied to us through Christ, the only place that we would have before God would be one of judgment and wrath, even as uh, Brandon prayed earlier. It's only because of the grace of God that we are able to now have a relationship of forgiveness and peace with God does not rest in our actions or our own desires, because it's only because our our own actions and our own desires, our own thoughts, would only bring upon them wrath and judgment. That's all that our hearts could earn. Think about the words in the famous hymn, Rock of Ages, nothing good have I to bring. Simply to the cross I cling. And yet because we have a great and merciful high priest who is actively right now interceding for us before God, we are found cleansed, washed, sprinkled clean, and invited to draw near to Him. Isn't that an amazing reality? An amazing reality that the God who right now is putting breath into our lungs, and continue to put breath into our lungs as we sin against Him, and sinned against Him yesterday and even this morning in our hearts and our minds. That that God has washed us clean, and we are sprinkled with the blood of His Son, so that we could draw near to Him. We deserve nothing more than to be rejected by Him, and yet in complete consistency with His righteous standards, upholding His holiness, He has provided a way for us to draw near and to boldly approach, sprinkled clean, washed. And we're able to do so confidently because of His cleansing work in us. And second, we are charged to hope firmly. So first, we're... We are to approach boldly, and second, we are charged to hope firmly. Hope firmly. The reality is that our hope comes from the truth that we hold to, that our hope rests on solid ground and should not waver. Look back at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful our hope should not be unstable not because we've convinced ourselves not because we wake up and and hold to anything that is temporal that will be fleeting no because the one who has promised to cleanse us the one who has promised to overcome sin, the one who has actually overcome sin and death, the one who has provided a way of salvation, the one who is faithful and just to forgive, the one who is both the just and the justifier, always has been and always will be faithful. Stop and think about that for a moment. How quickly do we grumble and complain and look around us and say in either word or action or just in our thoughts, I don't have enough. I can't trust God. He's not working things out for me the way that I was hoping that they would work out. So, so maybe I should take matters into my own hands. And so we're willing to do whatever it takes to get what we want. We're willing to hurt those around us We're willing to manipulate those that we love. We're willing to outright blatantly sin against God. Why? All because we are doubting his faithfulness. We are doubting his promises. We're doubting his goodness. We're, in essence, looking at God and saying, God, I'm just not sure if you're going to come through on your promises. I'm just not convinced. What I find fascinating when you think about what the author of Hebrews goes on to write in chapter 11, he talks about all of these men and women throughout the course of history that had this unbelievable faith and hope in Christ. But remember what he writes in Hebrews eleven thirty nine, And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God has provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect think about that these men and women whose faith was commended in their lifetime here on earth did not receive what was promised and yet their faith and their hope did not waver it was commended we must remember that the faithfulness of god is for eternity Keep this plastered on the inside of your mind. Time can never outlast His commitment to His promises. Time can never outlast God's commitment to His promises. Even the ones that we may never see fulfilled here on this side of heaven. Even those will one day be fulfilled in future glory. You know, I find it interesting. Everyone, most people here probably know the story of Job, right? It's a really long book, so don't make me recap the whole thing. But a lot of stuff goes really bad in his life, right, early on. And then we go through this this whole long book where we, we hear this uh, really poor counsel from his friends. And then at the very end of it, God uh, lays what I like to call the, the, the holy smackdown on Job, reminding him, who it is that he is and and challenging him? were you there when I you know uh, laid the foundations of the earth, et cetera, et cetera. And a lot of times we think about that book and we have in the the background as we're reading the first chapters of Job, well we know how this ends. Job gets all this stuff back and it's actually multifold and God comes through and we kind of say, okay, if Job had it that bad, and God came through in the end, I can I can hold out. But what happens, what would happen if, in fact, God did not restore back to Job? Those, all, all of his riches and, and family and all of that at the end of his life here on earth. How differently would we look at that story? Would we point a finger at God and say, God, you're, you're not really a good God look what you did to this man, look at what you allowed to happen to this man, and, and nothing was restored back to him here on earth. All that would do in our hearts is really, truly reveal our grasp to the temporal gifts and rewards of God and His goodness here on earth, right? And yet, as one commentator writes in verse 23 of Hebrews chapter 10, it quickly must turn eschatological it quickly turns to focusing on the future promises of God, focusing on the future work of God, the future glory with, that we're going to have even with Christ. God will come through on His promises, and you may not see that here in this life. You may not. Guess what? Do any kind of study on how the lives of the apostles ended. Not good. Not good. And yet each and every one of them had a hope to the end, a faith to the end in Christ, because they rested on His promises and goodness. But our author knows something else. We can't think eschatologically without thinking ecclesiologically. We cannot think eschatologically without thinking Ecclesiologically, those are big words. So another way to put that is we can't think about the future gathering of God's people without thinking about the present gathering of God's people. We can't think about one day being in eternity, worshiping God amongst the people of God without thinking about the implications of our present gathering with the people of God. Look with me at verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Because of the work of Christ, the life of worship is one that approaches boldly and hopes firmly, And third, a life of worship is one that gathers intentionally. A life of worship is one that gathers intentionally. A life of worship is is actively and continually thinking about how they can build up those around them and care for them to be more like Christ, always being intentional to do this whenever they're gathered together with other believers. One commentator uh, reminded me of something that I know I too often forget or don't even think about this in this way. that the act of caring for one another, the act of stimulating fellow believers on spiritually and morally is actually a very high calling. It's a very high calling. I know I personally, when, when thinking about caring for others or encouraging others or loving others or pouring into others or discipling others, I can think of it oftentimes more in the category of, of a duty or, or, or a task. But we have to take a moment and remember that caring for one another's souls is actually great undeserved high calling from god himself and the charge is for us to consider this often it's to pay close attention to this calling this isn't something that should just happen in the background of our lives this isn't something that we should just kind of hope we can fit into our everyday life but it should be at the forefront of our thinking Uh, practically pouring into those around you spiritually should be one of the very first things that, that you consider when, when you're thinking about your schedule, when you're looking at your budget, when you're planning out your weekend or, or your vacations, when you're considering how to serve in a ministry. I can say this because none of them are here, right? When you're going to a conference. I'm kidding. I is see a conference, sorry. The sad thing is, I wonder how often we do all of these things, schedules, budgets, vacations, all of these things, with only self in mind. Not even thinking twice about the brothers and sisters that we gather together with. Not even thinking twice about those that we are called daily to pour into and encourage and spur on into Christ's likeness. Unless we mistakenly uh, misunderstand this, this is not merely talking about church attendance. Uh, This is not talking about, and praise the Lord that you're all here, right? But this is not just talking about The couple of hours, a few hours when you come together on a Sunday morning. Or the Bible studies that are, I'm not even sure what weeks these ladies' studies meet after those announcements. (laughs) Uh, Second and fourth Wednesdays. Second and fourth. I got you, man. (laughs) It's not just talking about that, though. Praise the Lord, you're going to those things. I hope you are. I can come on a Sunday morning and encourage you and, and go back to my church. I want to encourage you, be as involved even in the formal times and the formal gatherings of Grace Bible Church here as often as you can. But I, I think what's sad is that the tendency of our heart, and maybe even some of you here this morning might think when you read something like this, I'm going to those Bible studies. I come together on every single Sunday i'm good i'm living this out i'm doing exactly what it is that i'm called to do maybe i come early and set up chairs maybe i serve in all these different ways but this is talking about meaningful engagement in the body of christ ongoing meaningful engagement in the body of christ we have to ask ourselves when we read a verse like this, do, do I stir others up to love and good works? Are those around me regularly encouraged to live more like Christ? Do I challenge others to love those around them more? It's interesting the way that the author of Hebrews uh, writes this. What's in view here actually isn't our love, and our good works but it's encouraging others towards these things we would actually be stopping short if we looked at this and stopped and said how am i loving others how am i doing good works that's not what he's saying here we should be striving to do those things and that should be descriptive of us but he's saying how are you encouraging others to do these things How are you provoking others toward these? You can say this is an others-focused command. It implies something that I don't want us to miss. Uh, The assumption is that believers actually care about the well-being of other believers. That's the assumption. And we could take take it a step further. Believers who have committed to care for one another within an identified local church or local gathering have a unique and particular commitment to, though, to show this care and love toward others in their midst. So what does that mean? If you are a member even of this church, of Grace Bible Church, you have committed to live this charge out with every other member of this church. The high calling that we're talking about if you look around, it's to be lived out with those that gather together, not only when you gather together formally here, but throughout the week, day by day. This crushes the idea that, or concept of being a passive church member. It completely erases the category of being a passive church member who would also think they are a healthy church member. Do not engage in the spiritual lives of those around you, then, uh, sad to say, it, you're not a healthy member of the church. Unfortunately, there are people that I can sadly think of, even in our own church, that get them talking about sports, recreation, their job, uh, maybe their kids what they are entertained by, some show that they're into. But as soon as you start to bring up Christ, as soon as you start to bring up His Word, as soon as you start to dive into the the realm of spirituality, uh, of how the Word has called us to live, the conversation ends pretty quickly. Very quickly. And so instead of taking that opportunity to, to, to dive in when those things come up, uh, and encourage those that are doing that. Instead, they, they retreat or they pull away. That is not the view of a healthy believer. That should not be descriptive of anyone who has been saved by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Verse 25. Not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. There's a pretty uh, simple point that's being made here in this verse. You can't build others up if you're not around them, right? Kind of obvious, right? You can't encourage people if you're not around people. It's kind of like a and and. Uh, the conference that uh, we were at this past week uh, talked a lot about training up men. Talked a lot about shepherding and pouring into men. You can't do that if you don't like being around men. If you don't like being around people, you shouldn't be a pastor. You shouldn't be in ministry. You can't build those build up those around you if you are never around them. If we reject the most basic component of this, which is just gathering together with God's people then living in obedience to this charge of stirring up fellow Christians is impossible. It would be kind of like this. If if a man were to come up to you <coughs> and he's talking about his relationship with his wife and he's saying, I really want to grow in, in loving my wife. I really want to grow in leading my wife and, and, and learning my wife. But then he goes on to say, every time she walks into the room, I, I, I leave the room she comes down to the dinner table, I actually get up and go sit on the couch. Oh, we sleep in a different bed every night, so on and so forth. If that's you, please, but we can talk after. because We can dive into that. That's not a good picture. It's not a healthy picture. It's like him saying that he wants to get to know his bride and yet doesn't want to be around her, wants nothing to do with her. That is the same. the same way that would not make sense That is the same picture that is being painted here by the author of Hebrews, someone who is claiming to love Christ, someone who is claiming to love uh, Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, and then rejecting the very people that he died for, not wanting to be around them. We can't say that we want to learn and love about, learn, uh, learn about Jesus Christ and love him and then never want to be around his people. We can't say that we want to care for those around us and then never want to be around them. But it's sad that what the author, who the author is writing about here in this verse, uh, these are not people that are saying they're struggling with this. This is not the person that says, you know what, it's hard for me to to be around people. For whatever reason but gets up and gathers together with god's people that says it's hard for me to strike up a conversation or to think of others throughout the week but says you know what i'm gonna i'm gonna shoot that text message anyway i'm gonna call them anyway i'm gonna see how one another how they're doing i'm gonna find out a way to encourage those that are in even specifically in a part of my local church and fellow believers this is not talking about that person he said that this has become a habit A habit. In fact, the the real weight behind the word uh, that is translated as habit isn't merely a habit. This has become a custom. You could think about it like this. Neglecting to meet together has become their new form of worship. Their new form of worship. Rejecting fellowship has become the norm. And not only is there no desire to be around believers but the towel has been thrown in lest any of us hear this or read this and think that that we are incapable of getting to that place that we are incapable of having uh any part of our character or of our being fall into this kind of approach to god's people uh, it's helpful to be reminded of some of the reasons why one might neglect to meet apathy Indifference, pride, shame, an unwillingness to let go of some sin, maybe bitterness, maybe you've been offended and you're choosing not to forgive, fear, disappointment, whether in friendships or ministry, laziness worldliness maybe the pursuits of of this world are just flat out uh, more important than than following this command If you're like me each and every one of those at different points in our lives we can find ourselves fighting against any one of those tendencies at any point in our hearts sadly though There are some here this morning that if you're honest with yourself, you would admit that you've actually given up fighting. You've given into a low view of the church, a low view of the people of God, a low view of stirring others up to be more like Christ, and instead church has become optional at best. Pouring into others around you and being poured into is non-existent. If that's you, friend, go before God. Repent. Don't keep living that lie. Confess it as sin. Turn away from it. Turn to the grace of God that He has given us by the gathering of the church and cling to it. Must be reminded that God resists the proud, but He what gives grace to the humble. after giving the positive side of what we should be doing, of encouraging one another, there's something that is somewhat jarring. The the way that he ends this section is somewhat jarring. I didn't mention this earlier, but verses 19 through 25 in the Greek, it's actually one continuous sentence. From the very beginning to the very end, he has a continual thrust and idea in mind. And this thrust this sentence ends with the return of Christ in mind think about it he talked about Christ's sacrifice and talked about his service and now he comes full circle with the return of Christ in mind and he uses the term the day refers to this day as something that is drawing near as something in essence that is imminent Yes, there is a joyous eschatological focus when thinking about the promises of God and, and, and Him being faithful to fulfill His promises one day. But if, if you think a little bit about the Old Testament and you think about the day of the Lord, what is the continual reminder to the Jewish people of what the day of the Lord is? It's day of judgment on those who are rejecting Christ. It's a day of judgment on those who are rejecting God's laws and His statutes and who are, who are proud before Him. It's easy to focus on these verses about encouraging one another and not neglecting to meet together and only think about the temporal implications of, of church life. But there's so much more at stake. I think in all of my study of these verses of this passage, there, were, there was one thing that I came across in one of the commentaries that, that just jarred me. That was like a, a gut punch. And this commentator said that the one who is neglecting to meet together, neglecting to meet together, if that is your habit, that that is a prelude to apostasy. That it is a prelude to apostasy. Why? Why? Why so serious? If we're not encouraging others, if we're not around the body, then in turn we are not being encouraged. Like I mentioned earlier, our love for Christ should be called into question if we are neglecting to be and show love for his bride. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. So what does he tell us to do? But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. It makes it very clear. If we are not around one another, apostasy is creeping at our doorstep. Rejecting Christ is imminent. Hardening of your heart will happen. We need one another as the people of God. We need to be encouraging one another as a people of God. Christian walk was never meant to be lived alone, it was never meant to be walked alone. We have been saved by the work of Christ into a people, and we are called to live lives of worship together as a people. Brothers and sisters, we we talked earlier about the final sacrifice of Christ. What was the purpose of that sacrifice? He shed His blood, and His body was broken to save a people for His own possession, bringing us peace with God. His work should lead us to a life of worship, one that cares for the people that He died to redeem, and a life that understands the critical need that we have for one another. So remember the work of Christ. Remember His final sacrifice. Remember his faithful, ongoing service and humbly allow it to lead you to a life of worship where you will approach boldly and hope firmly and gather intentionally. Let's pray. God, we are so grateful for how you have shown your mercy and compassion and grace toward us. You've saved us. You have provided a way for you, for your justice to to be maintained. And it took your son dying on a cross after living a perfect life his blood being shed, his body being broken. And yet you did not leave us to walk this walk alone. We have Christ right now interceding for us, mediating for us. And you have also given us one another. You have given us fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, those who acknowledge that apart from Christ, we have nothing good in and of ourselves, and as we think about those around us, we are reminded of your goodness. We're reminded of your work. We're reminded of one another's testimonies, of how you've saved us, of how you've brought us out of darkness into light. And we're able to encourage one another. We're able to point one another to Christ. Even at times as we're all honest, if we're all honest, uh, we all have those times that we, we are uh, uh, clinging more to the world than to the cross. That, that the, the, uh, the desires that are in our hearts uh, are, are stronger than the desire to honor Christ. And yet as we live before you and amongst one another, we are able to uh, even be transparent with each other with those struggles that we have in sin. Confess that sin to one another and are reminded of your goodness, reminded of uh, the, the work that Christ has done. And so we ask, I I even pray specifically for Grace Bible Church here in Gainesville, that you would use every man and woman that would be a part of this church to encourage one another, to make one another more into the likeness of the Savior Christ. That ultimately, whether whether this church were to not even grow uh, another person or another uh, uh, family, or if it were to to grow to be multiple times the size, that it would grow with those who have a care for one another, who understand their need for one another, and who understand and and revel and, and, and are immersed in the love of their Savior and His bride. We ask that you would do this work. This is a supernatural work. This is not something that we can conjure up on our own. This is not something that we can do in our own strength. We will fail but we can do it resting in your work, remembering your promises, relying on your Spirit who dwells in us. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.